Join us as we peruse all things Potter. Hello and welcome to Wizard Studies. I'm Audrey. And I'm Katie. And today we're going to be talking about the first four stories in the Tales of Beetle the Bard. So that's all of them except for the Tale of the Three Brothers. And this is because at some point... We are going to do a Deathly Hallows episode, and that will probably include notes on the tales of Tale of Three Brothers. So we're just doing the four lesser known, at least to Muggles, Tales of Beetle the Bard. <laughs> uh, before we get started, though, we have a quick announcement, and this is some very exciting news for Katie and I. Probably not so much for you guys, but <laughs> we're finally going to be able to record an episode in the same room together. We have not seen each other since last December, which was... We haven't seen each other since the day that we came up with the idea for this podcast. So we always record over FaceTime, so it's going to be so exciting to finally record in the same room. I'm sure we'll have even better banter, if you think our banter (laughs) is good. Um, So that's going to be in October, and we're asking you guys for something to do something a little bit different for that episode. So this actually came from one of our listeners, Alex. You know who you are. You emailed us. You're very supportive on social media, too, so thank you. Yes, thank you so much. (laughs) And Alex had a great episode idea that we're actually going to use for this special episode. Um, We're going to be doing a whole episode on your unanswered questions from the wizarding world. So this can be something that JK never gave an answer for, or it can be something that has always confused you, or you want a better answer and can't get it we might not be able to give you that answer but we're gonna talk about it we can try we can try so literally any topic within the wizarding world is fair game we will do our best to answer them you can send your questions to our email or any of our social media accounts um, wizard study podcast on instagram and facebook and then wizard studies on twitter and we'll include those questions in that episode and what's the exciting part for you is that we will do a giveaway on that episode for one of the people that sent us in a question. We have a few little things that we are looking to give away. So if you send us in a question, you'll get entered into a raffle to win that giveaway. So send those questions in, anything you want. You can even just be something you want to hear our opinions on. And we'll try not to <laughs> go off too much. <laughs> Yeah, and this episode, like Audrey mentioned, is going to be recorded in October. I believe it's going to be the second weekend in October. So if you want to send in a question, make sure you do it before then, preferably like the fir- before October so yeah. that we have time to like get all of them together and research the ones that we want to answer. Yes, and we will keep reminding you probably on the upcoming episodes and on our social media, we'll send out some reminders for questions. Yeah, and like Audrey mentioned, we're going to be announcing the winner on that episode, so it means that you guys have to listen to us if you want to win. (laughs) Also, you can send in as many questions as you want. Alex sent us like four or five, so. Yeah, and they were all great questions, and I just want to say thank you so much again to her because she's been a listener from very early on and has always been very kind to us, so thank you so much, Alex. (laughs) So starting this episode, like Audrey mentioned, we're going to be talking about the tales of Beetle the Bard. And if nobody knows what that is, it is the collection of children's stories that is referenced, I think, exclusively in Deathly Hallows. Ron might have mentioned the title of some of the stories before then. I'm not 100% sure. So it's a collection of five children's books, and it's written by Beetle the Bard. And the version that we have, there are also notes from Dumbledore that we're going to be breaking down for each story. I believe in any version that you own, there is going to be the notes for Dumbledore, from Dumbledore. I think the newer versions might have updated notes. I'm not sure. I know there are some additional features in the newer version, but we both have, I think it's the first edition. Um, It was printed in 2008. So when we were, the two of us were 10. So it was kind of the perfect time for children's stories. Yeah, and I have always loved these stories. I think they're so fun. And I think it just shows 
like create or adds to the depth of the world that JK created. Not only did she like create a world, but she has subsequently like published children's stories that Harry had never has never even read. So I just think it's so cool how involved and how deep the world goes that she's written and created for us. And I just want to say, like pretty much all of her extra things, like Quidditch of the Ages and Fantastic Beasts, this is not a money grab because she does, um, a lot of the proceeds get donated to charity from buying this. I know the, the edition we have, Scholastic will give its net proceeds to the Children's High Level Group, a charity founded in 2005 by J.K. Rowling and Baroness Nicholson of Winterborn. Yeah, I think that they might be going to Lumos. Maybe now. More recently, yeah. yeah, the newer editions. I could be wrong, but that's another charity that JK has created. So there is an, a little introduction. I believe it's written by JK herself. Like, obviously it's written by JK, but... <laughs> it's like, credited to JK. Yeah, yeah. Um, so like I said, the Tales of Beale the Bard are a collection of stories... Um, for children and they're probably the most well-known children's stories in the wizarding world in England so it'll be I mean I assume that like other countries might have versions of these stories but I assume that they probably also have their own children's stories that they tell their children like that are from their culture so it would also be really cool to hear some children's stories from other countries that we know have wizarding schools and wizarding populations and so she says that they're as familiar to wizarding children as Sleeping Beauty and Cinderella are to muggle children. And she makes multiple references to Cinderella and Sleeping Beauty throughout this little introduction that she has written. And she says that they're very similar to muggle stories and that they're used to kind of teach right and wrong to young children. Like that's the point of a lot of children's stories and fables um, kind of they're supposed to be used as a guide to help children learn what's right and wrong in the world and what they should and shouldn't do. So she says that virtue is rewarded and wickedness is punished um, in these stories. And the one of the differences between these stories and muggle stories is that magic is normally the root of a lot of the problems. So she talks about how in like Snow White there's a poison apple that a witch gives um, Snow White and that's the cause of her problem and Sleeping Beauty gets pricked by a magical needle and she falls into a slumber and that's her problem like that both of their problems in those stories come from magic but in these stories magic is what magic is used for both the good and the bad side in these stories and it's used to show that even though you have magic you still have problems just like anybody else they're used to show like young wizarding children that magic is not the answer to all of their problems they also have to like make good decisions and be good people and then there's just a little bit about they talk about women's roles in stories um compared the Beetle the Bard stories to our stories and I thought this was a little bit harsh of JK and I actually didn't really like this. I don't know if this is me being like a really big Disney fan and being like <laughs> offended that she's basically calling out Disney movies and Disney stories um, but she talks about how one other difference is during in these stories and tales of Beetle the Bard women and witches are more proactive and deciding their fate and deciding their journey and being not being saved by men and then compared to like Cinderella waiting for a prince to bring her back her shoe it's like well that really oversimplifies the plot and I understand that maybe some of these earlier princesses are not like feminist icons by any means but I also don't think that like these women are much better to be honest with you mm. I, I honestly was kind of like snapping my fingers at at that comment so it's interesting that you had kind of the opposite reaction. But I think Disney is trending towards better, like, feminist themes lately. They're, like, adding things to the remakes and stuff. But I I just liked that she, like, pointed that out, I think. Yeah, I mean, I definitely... I don't want my words to be misconstrued that I don't want to have powerful <laughs> females in my stories. I just, like, took a little bit of offense to her, like, specifically yeah. calling out these, like, princesses that have been a huge part of my life. <laughs> but, yeah, like, I definitely see where she's coming from, and this could be another indication that we've seen multiple times that the wizarding world is a little bit more progressive than the Muggle world, um, especially in terms of, like, women's rights. Yeah. 
So I thought that was interesting. And then there's a little bit about Beetle the Bard, the little that we know. So the man who, I assume he's a man. I think they refer to him as a he. So Beetle the Bard lived in the 15th century. He was born in Yorkshire, and we don't really know a lot about him. There is one image that has survived of him, and it shows him having a marvelous beard. So I assume he had a marvelous beard. And throughout these stories, there's kind of a theme of muggles are never really the enemy in a lot of these stories. They're just kind of like maybe ignorant, like they are innocent, but they don't know much like they don't know enough to be like they just don't know what's going on all the time and so from that it can be surmised that maybe he didn't have a really negative feeling towards muggles and then another theme throughout his stories is that the most the most powerful witcher wizard rarely triumphs in the story as opposed to the witcher wizard that makes the good and the right decisions and jk rowling compares him a lot to albus dumbledore in that sense And then McGonagall gave the notes that Dumbledore had written after he died. She became headmistress and so inherited a lot of the things that he had in his office. And she authorized his notes to be published. And then the the, the tale of the three brothers that's used in this edition is also said to be translated by Hermione Granger. And then Audrey mentioned this earlier, all proceeds from this book, like back in the real world, all proceeds from this book are donated to the Children's High Level Group, which they described as a charity that benefits children that are in desperate need of a voice. So the first story that we're going to talk about is The Wizard and the Hopping Pot. So I'm just going to go into a summary of the story and we'll talk a little bit about Dumbledore's notes and kind of just our thoughts on it. So in this story, it starts out, there's an talking about how there was an old wizard who was very skilled um, and he used magic to cure all of the surrounding neighbors. It never explicitly says that those people are muggles, but you can kind of gather that they're non-magical people. And I also, it also made me wonder if muggle wasn't a word because I don't Mm. see the word muggle in any of the stories. So I just, I wonder, but anyway, the old wizard would cure all of his surrounding neighbors from their afflictions and this reminded me of the fat friar who used magic to help cure muggles without saying that it was magic so the old wizard told everyone that his cures came from a cauldron and he called he called that cauldron the lucky cooking pot his lucky cooking pot um, because he didn't tell them that he was actually performing magic on them when the old wizard died, his son inherited the cauldron, and in it was a single slipper with a note that read, in the fond hope, my son, that you will never need it. And the son was not a nice person, unlike his dad. He looked down on muggles, and he thought his father was stupid for helping them, so he kind of just tossed the slipper aside and was gonna just ignore the pot. The first muggle came knocking for help after his father's death, to cure warts and the son turned them away because he was like i'm not going to help you and then the pot subsequently began to grow warts and it sprouted a foot and started to hop and follow him around so that he could not sleep or avoid it and then two more people come knocking on his door and he turns them both away and they the pot then develops the afflictions that they wanted cured as well so at this point the pot is so obnoxious and the son has turned away three people at this point, so people stopped coming from coming for help because word of mouth had traveled that he wasn't going to help the people like his father did. But the pot continued to develop the problems that all of the people in the community had, even if they didn't ask the son for help. So it would sprout these new problems as they like occurred throughout the community. Finally, the son was so annoyed by the pot that he ran down the street with the pot hopping behind him, shouting for people to tell him all their afflictions and waving his wand and carrying them all. Um, (laughs) This, my note was that this must be pre-international statute of security, secrecy. And then later in Dumbledore's notes, it reveals that's true because Beetle was 15th century and the international statute of secrecy wasn't until 1689. So this would not fly in the wizarding world that we know. So then after the sun has cured all the people, the pot is then cured as well. And it burps out the slipper, which the wizard then puts on his on its foot. 
and he continues to cure everyone for the rest of his life. My first thought on this is I don't really know how this is a good moral because he only cures people because he doesn't want to be annoyed by the bot. Like, he doesn't learn to be a good person. He's just doing it out of his own self-interest. True. But then you could also make the argument that, like, maybe this was a similar story or case for his father. Yeah. And then, like, you just become a good person. Like, sometimes you just need a little kick in the butt to do the right thing. I guess. But it's just, like... No, you shouldn't help people because they need to be helped. You should help people so they don't annoy you. Or your magical pot doesn't annoy you. But it's also a children's story, which is something that I bring up when I, like, talk about my thoughts on some of the stories. It's like, these these stories are overly simplistic for a reason. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. I guess. So going to Dumbledore's notes, which is going against what you just said, Katie. (laughs) It says... Quote, a simple and heartwarming fable, one might think. In which case, one would re- reveal oneself to be a nincompoop. <laughs> <laughs> you fell oh, into no. that trap. <laughs> oh, no. So Dumbledore goes on to explain that this fable is really not all that simple. He's, in fact, really surprised that the story survived because it is so pro-muggle and Beetle was way ahead of his time with this. So, wizards at this time were terrified to reveal themselves to muggles. And J.K. notes, in the footnotes of Dumbledore's notes, um, that a significant number of wizards and witches did die at the hands of muggle witch hunters. And she mentions that Nearly Headless Nick and many young wizards were... Nearly Headless Nick was one of these people. And she mentions that young wizards were particularly susceptible to being... Um, killed by muggle witch hunters because they couldn't control their magic so they didn't really know how to hide it so because of the anti-muggle sentiment there's another version of this story where the pot actually protects the wizard from his violent muggle neighbors and eats them until he gets the muggles to let him practice in peace and then the pot like burps the muggles back up and then the wizard's like able to practice his magic in peace but He doesn't actually, like, it's not about helping muggles. (laughs) And then this story really made people mad because one of the insults against pro-muggle people was that they were worse at magic. And this story doesn't show that because the original, the old wizard, the father, is said to be a really good magician and he just uses his power just to help people. So Dumbledore is also a counter to that, to that claim, that insult, but... Um, Brutus Malfoy actually was the editor of Warlock at War and he wrote that he during kind of this really anti-muggle time and he wrote about this stereotype saying that ma- magical lovers were as magical muggle lovers were as magical as squibs so I was just interested in the Brutus Malfoy name drop there. So I looked at the Malfoy family tree on Pottermore, which is actually really cool. They have a lot there, and you like it even includes like the Black family, so Sirius is on it, and then like Teddy Lupin is on it because Tonks, he's Tonks's kid. So um, definitely recommend checking that out. But one thing that was interesting is that Brutus Malfoy was actually the great-grandfather of Lucius Malfoy, so a few generations back. But he was also the son of Lucius Malfoy I. So the Lucius we know was named after his great-great-grandfather. And fun fact about Lucius Malfoy I was that he apparently tried to win the hand of Queen Elizabeth I, which it says, like, on the Pottermore family tree, it says, like, oh, he was as, like, slimy as his, the other Lucius we know. But wouldn't that have tainted the purebow line? Or is that telling us that Queen Elizabeth I was actually a witch? Maybe. Or maybe he just wanted to, like, prove that he could woo her. Yeah. Maybe. He wasn't going to have kids with her. Yeah. I don't know. Just a conquest kind of thing. So it seems against the muggle hating. Like, it seems contrary to that. Well, maybe, like, even though the king or queen are muggles, they're still, like, the king or queen. You know what I mean? Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Like, their royal blood makes up for their muggle blood kind of thing. Yeah. Okay. Sure. (laughs) And then, finally, another complaint about this story is how gruesome it was. 
which I don't really think it's that gruesome. It's just the pot is like sprouting afflictions. Um, there are much more gruesome ones later on, <laughs> but <laughs> this is the first mention we get in Dumbledore's notes of this witch named Beatrix Bloxam. And so she's mentioned later in some of the notes and she rewrote a bunch of the tales of Beetle the Bard um, for her own collection, which Dumbledore says is infamous. It's called the Toadstool Tales, um, which she wrote to protect kids' innocence. So Dumbledore quotes her version of like the end of the story and it's really annoying. I'm not even gonna read it, Um, but it's like really childish. And then (laughs) Dumbledore says, Mrs. Bloxham's tale has met the same response from generations of wizarding children. Uncontrollable retching, followed by an immediate demand to have the book taken from them and mashed into a pulp. (laughs) So Dumbly doesn't hold back. No, he comes after Lucius Malfoy in one of the things I'm going yeah, to later. Oh God, like, comes so for his life. <laughs> I love all those, like, subtle dro- um, hints and stuff. Name drops. Yeah. Okay, so moving on, the second story in The Tales of Beelabard is The Fountain of Fair Fortune. Sorry, I know it's, like, really pronounced fortune, but Jim Dale says Fountain of Fair Fortune, and, like, I can't, I can't hear it anywhere else. No, but, like, when he says, um, there is one instance where Ron, like, name drops a couple of them. He's, where he's, like, oh, you guys don't know Babbity Rabbity, the Fountain of Fair Fortune? Um, oh, when he get yeah. when Hermione yeah. gets Tales of Beale the Bard, I think is when it happens. Yeah, he starts, like, naming all of them. Yeah. So, this one takes place in a city long ago, where I think most of them take place. So, there's this garden that's protected by walls, and in the center of this garden, or in this garden, there is a, there's the Fountain of Fair Fortune. So, once a year, from sunrise to sunset, on the longest day of the year, so the summer solstice, one lucky person is allowed to fight their way through the garden to the fountain, and it's said that if you bathe in the water of the fountain, um they're magical so you will live like a, what is the quote that they use hold on let me find it i think it's will you live long or is it like you'll get your affliction cured it says you'll have fair fortune forevermore uh, okay so basically it'll just have a really nice life whatever is kind of warrant the the way that's interpreted by i believe like the people trying to get it is like whatever worry you have will get fixed yeah. So, the story picks up where it's the morning of this day where one person is allowed to fight their way to the fountain. There are hundreds of people that flock to this garden every year, both muggles and witches, wizards alike. They, there are three witches that stood together in the outskirts of the crowd and they introduce themselves to each other. The first one is Asha, and she's a witch who has a malady that has no hope of getting better, getting fixed, so she's doomed to die because of this sickness. Althea is a witch who was robbed of her gold house and wand by an evil sorcerer, so she has no money, no wand, no house. And then Amada is a witch who had just been left heartbroken by a man that she loved deeply. So they're all kind of chatting and they're like, hey, well, if we have the chance, like, let's try and help each other to get to this fountain. Female friendships. Yeah, it's really cute. So right as the sun rose, the garden opened up and everybody started to rush forward. But these creepers is how they're described. Like, I assume that they're kind of like vines, but they're only referred to as creepers, but... I think that they're just vines, reach out and grabbed Asha, who grabbed Ethelda, who grabbed Amada, who got entangled in the armor of this knight that was nearby, and he gets ripped off of his stallion, and they all get swept up into the garden. So they're the chosen ones that get to try and fight their way to the fountain. Asha and Ethelda are immediately upset at Amada <laughs> that she brought this stupid knight with them. And the knight, who we learn's name is Sir Luckless, noticed that these three women were witches, and he has no chance of beating them to the fountain, so he's like, okay, like, I'll leave, don't worry. And then Ahmad is like, hold up, you are such a freaking coward, stay with us, we need your sword, like, your sword could be useful, help us get to the fountain. And he's like, okay, fine. So they start their trek, and throughout their trek, they meet three obstacles, the first of which is a giant worm that they could not defeat with either their magic or the sword, and the worm had asked for proof of their pain. I know that the worm is described as being, like, 
I think it's described as white in the thing, but it really yeah. just made me think of a flobber worm. Yeah, I just think I've thought of like a huge maggot. Ew. <laughs> I mean, flobber worms are gross too. <laughs> yeah. So the worm asks for proof of their pain. After getting so frustrated, Asha or Asha starts to weep, and then the worm drank the tears from her eyes. Ugh. Like, kind of gross. <laughs> I'm just imagining the worm like, like suctioning on her face and just like licking Ew. the tears off of her face and but he drank the tears and let them pass the second obstacle came with the words pay me the fruit of your labors and so it was up on this hill and the knight took out a coin and placed it on the ground because that's how he interpreted this task but it rolled away down the hill and so they just began to walk and they walked and they walked and they walked for hours and the sun started to go down but they were getting nowhere on this hill. But Athelda just kept going. She was walking faster and harder than everyone. She said, courage, my friends, and do not yield, as she wiped her brow. And when the sweat hit the earth from her brow, they were able to make progress and start walking up the hill again. And the last obstacle was a stream. Sir Luckless had originally jumped in the stream and almost sank, but nearby a stone read, painting the treasure of your past. So they thought about it and thought what it could mean, and eventually Amada came up with a solution. She drew her happy memories that she had with her past lover out of her head and placed them in the stream, and then they were able to cross. They saw the fountain ahead of them, and it was time to decide which of them would bathe in the waters. But before they could, Asha collapsed. The journey, she, if you remember, she's the one who has the sickness. So the journey had tired her, and she was close to death. She was in so much pain that she wouldn't let them touch her to carry her up to the fountain, because that was their original original plan, just to have her bathe in the waters, and she'd be cured. But immediately, Athelda started collecting herbs nearby that she thought could help, and Asha took the potion and was immediately cured for from her malady. Like, not, she didn't just, like, recover from the symptoms. Like, the malady was cured. And so Asha was like, let Athelda bathe, bathe in the waters. But Athelda was like, hey, I have this cure to this sickness. I can make money off of this. I don't need to bathe in the fountain. And then Athelda was like, let Amada bathe. And then Amada was like, I already got rid of my memories. I've moved on. I don't need to bathe. Let Sir Luckless bathe. And so he did. And as he came out of the waters, he professed his love for Amada, and she returned her love for him. And so they all lived happily ever after. The three friends happily walked back out of the garden, never suspecting that the water was not magical at all. Such a wholesome story. <laughs> I love this one. I think it might yeah, be one this, of my favorites. I think this one and the Harry Heart are probably my two favorites. Oh, it's reason. It reminds me a lot of um, the Edgar Allan Poe. What's that called? Yes, the ticking. Yeah, but what, oh, what's the name oh, of it? Shoot. I'm the Telltale Heart. The, yes, the Telltale Heart. But yeah, this one I think is my favorite. And I just love how at the end you're just like of course they like the ma- the water yeah. isn't magical like it's actually themselves that can save each other from each other's sadness or sickness or whatever and so I'm gonna talk about my thoughts a little bit later on it more than I just did I guess but the notes that Dumbledore has on this story are really really interesting so there's basically two different things that he talks about in these notes and one is about this time that Hogwarts decided to put on a production of the Fountain of Fair Fortune for Christmas one year the production was led by the herbology professor at the time Herbert Beery who then we learn went on left Hogwarts and then went on to teach at the Wizarding Academy of Dramatic Arts. So he must have been really into theater. And Dumbledore was in charge of special effects, so he created the hill and the fountain, I believe, kind of like the sets. He also mentions that he was a young transfiguration teacher at this time. So this might happen within the story timeline of the Fantastic Beasts series, actually. And also, another professor that was involved was Professor Sylvanus Kettleburn, and he was in charge of getting the giant worm. And there's just a funny note that shows, that says that Kettleburn was put on probation no less than 62 times during his tenure as <laughs> Care Magical Creatures teacher. And um, Dumbledore also mentions that him and Armando Dippet had a little bit of a um, rocky relationship. But Kettle, this might be one of the reasons why. Kettleburn decided it was a good idea to just put in an enlargement 
engorgement charm on an ashwinder and an ashwinder is like a snake so he just decides to put an engorgement charm on an ashwinder to play the giant worm i don't know why he thought that was a good idea he should have just used a flobber worm but he didn't and then another thing that added to the eventual collapse of this production is shortly before the production the actors that were playing sir luckless and amada were boyfriend and girlfriend but sir luckless dumped the girl who played amada right before the play to start dating the girl who played Asha. <laughs> so as the curtain rose, the Ashwinder exploded from the engorgement charm, and the witches playing Amada and Asha broke out into a duel. And the Great Hall eventually had to be evacuated due to the fire that was that erupted in the stage, on the stage, and the spells that were flying everywhere. And it was mentioned that Herbert Beery, the herbology professor actually got hit by one of these spells and his head was like misshapen for a couple weeks afterwards basically it was just a huge disaster um just a note on ashwinders they're terrifying um (laughs) and they like arise from the embers of a dying fire and then they only live for like an hour. They live long enough to like go lay their eggs and their eggs will like start fires. Like their eggs will ignite and then can burn down the building that they're in. But if you freeze their eggs, they can be used in the love potion. Ooh. Yeah, be- that's why the Great Hall actually caught in fire because the Ashbinder had laid eggs um, yeah. after it's well on stage or near the stage basically like i said it was just this huge disaster and then the other thing that he talks about in his notes is that there had this story has been subject to controversy just like the first one because it encourages the relationship between a witch and a muggle the knight and amada and so multiple times throughout the years it has been people have asked for it to be removed from the Hogwarts library. For one instance, Mr. Lucius Malfoy sent in a letter to Professor Dumbledore, and he cited that the reason he didn't like it is because of the encouragement of muggle-wizard relationships. And so Dumbledore sends him back. So-called pureblood families maintain their alleged purity by disowning, banishing, or lying about muggles or muggle-borns on their family trees. They then attempt to foist their hypocrisy upon the rest of us by asking us to ban works dealing with the truths they deny. There is not a witch or wizard in existence whose blood has not mingled with that of muggles, and I should therefore consider it both illogical and immoral to remove works dealing with the subject from our students' store of knowledge. And then it goes on to say, This exchange marked the beginning of Mr. Malfoy's long campaign to have me removed from my post as headmaster of Hogwarts, and of mine to have him removed from his position as Lord Voldemort's favorite Death Eater. I love that. So my thoughts on this is that I love this story. It's one of my favorites in Tales of Beetle the Bard, and I love that the story is not only like, don't rely on magic, but it's teaching you to rely on other people's people to help you get through things and to like trust people and to work together to complete things because you're always better than just yourselves. I will say that the one thing that I find a little bit iffy, and this is what I was referring to when I talked about how simplistic these are and how we have to remember that these are children's stories, is the abrupt nature of Ash's cure that like um, Altheldo was just able to like pick up the herbs around and like create the potion. I think you could also make an argument that like the hill did that on its own kind of Mm. thing but it just seems very abrupt and like oh this deathly cure and my poverty were fixed in one fell swoop like it's very children's story yeah but it's a good one (laughs) yeah that's definitely my favorite out of these four at least i don't know where tale of three brothers falls but definitely my favorite out of the ones we're talking about today Can I mention something real fast? Sorry. So they have a drawing of the fountain within the story, and the Deathly Hallows is engraved on the fountain. I saw that. Yeah. I thought that was very interesting. Yeah, so there's, like, three symbols on each, or there's four, sorry, on each level of the fountain, and one of them has the Deathly Hallows on it. Yeah, and they're presumably ancient runes. Yes. Okay, so the next story, not so um, lighthearted and heartwarming. <laughs> this is the Warlock's Hairy Heart. So 
The story opens and it's describing a young, rich, handsome warlock, basically kind of has it all. And he thought that all of his friends were stupid for going through the troubles of love. And he noticed that they were having so much pain with love. So he used dark arts to make it so that he would never fall in love. And we don't know what he does. We just know that he used dark arts. So he was very confident in his choice for many years. Even when his friends like finally found someone that they loved and got married and had kids, he was like, oh, like, why would you want kids? Blah, blah, blah. Um, so he's very sure in his choice until he overheard two of his servants saying that they pitied him for never finding love and how strange it was that someone like him couldn't find a wife. So then he decided that he wanted to prove everyone wrong. So he wanted to find a wife, but he wanted, he needed her to be a beautiful maiden who would strike jealousy in every man's heart. And he needed her to come from a magical line and he needed her to have money because he didn't want to sacrifice how like nice his lifestyle was. So basically this guy's the worst. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then it says that he just so happened, it just so happened that a maiden that fit all those qualifications was like in town visiting her family that day. How convenient. Wow. So he found her and he pursued her even though he wasn't really attracted to her at all or loved her at all. He just wanted to prove to everyone that he could have a wife. So he threw a feast in her honor and her family was very excited about this and they got her to attend the feast. And at the feast, he was kind of wooing her using poet's language to, to kind of get her to fall in love with him, but he didn't really know what any of it meant. And she kind of saw right through this. She said, um, she didn't believe that he had a heart. So he takes this very little, literally. <laughs> to prove her wrong, he brings her down to his dungeon. And side note here, ladies, never let a man take you to his dungeon. That's not... <laughs> or basement. Yeah. Same, same thing. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like, that's <laughs> not a good sign. Back out there. <laughs> so basically they get to his dungeon and he shows her in this casket a hairy shriveled heart and it's his heart that he had taken out of his chest and she's freaked out by this obviously she's like also it like does not look well like it's all like shriveled up and gross and so she told him that he must put it back in his body so he could feel love and he of course wants to win her over so he puts it back in his body and they embrace and she's all excited and he was so overwhelmed because his heart had been just kind of in the casket not experiencing anything for all those years and its appetites had grown strong and then we cut to the guests at the feast they like had noticed the hosts and the guests of honor's disappearance and they finally were like okay we should like go looking for them they finally find them in the dungeon and the maiden is on the ground dead and the warlock had taken out her heart which was shining in comparison to his and was licking it which i just said gross <laughs> and was trying to take out his heart again with his wand so that he could put hers in so basically he was like overcome with the need to like have her heart which is just mm, mm, i don't know and then he couldn't do it with his wand so because his heart it says that his heart had like hated all those years in the casket and had like solidified into his chest and so he cut open his chest with a knife and held both hearts in his hand for a second and then fell dead okay classic <laughs> so you get what i mean about gruesome <laughs> this also feels like it has like bigger meanings as far as like consent and that sort of stuff you mean you can't just go around cutting people's chest open and then taking their heart out? Like, shockingly, no, you can't. <laughs> Even if you have a shiny heart, I can't just cut it out. <laughs> Katie just grabbed her chest. <laughs> Don't take my heart, please. <laughs> um, so Dumbledore's notes on this, he talks about how many parents waited to tell this story to their kids until they thought they were old enough, which, like, makes sense. I don't I would have been traumatized by this. I think I was traumatized by this when I read it when I was like 10. <laughs> and then we get to hear about Dumbledore's favorite, Beatrix Bloxham again. <laughs> Beatrix claims that she overheard it when she was too young 
and was permanently scarred, and so that's why she never rewrote it. It's not included in her toadstool tales. Dumbledore thinks that the story survived because it tells um, how the temptation of magic to become invulnerable, how it can seem so easy to just um, attain that invulnerability. But of course, this is impossible even with magic. So this kind of gets back to what JK was saying in the introduction, where like magic doesn't solve all your problems. Um, and Dumbledore has this great quote where he says, to hurt is as human as to breathe. So you can't achieve invulnerability. And then just an interesting thing from the notes, which this was actually JK's footnote on Dumbledore's note, but it talks a little bit about the term warlock. So I'm just gonna read that footnote. It says, the term warlock is a very old one. Although it is sometimes used as interchangeable with wizard, it originally denoted one learned in dueling and all martial magic. It was also given as a title to wizards who had performed feats of bravery, rather as muggles were sometimes knighted for acts of valor. By calling the young wizard in this story a warlock, Beetle indicates that he has already been recognized as especially skillful at offensive magic. These days, wizards use warlock in one of two ways, to describe a wizard of unusually fierce appearance or as a title denoting particular skill or achievement. Thus, Dumbledore himself was chief warlock of the Wizengamot. I just thought that was interesting because I think a lot of a lot of like other not like Harry Potter, a lot of other series and like fables and stuff use warlock instead of wizard as the like male counterpart to witch. Then Dumbledore goes on to talk about how just like the warlock couldn't evade love um, or like totally become immune to it, um, there's no true love potion that has been found. So he talks a little bit about, about love magic, just how this is like a complicated area. And then JK cites a man named Hector Dagworth Granger as saying that there's no true love potion, but Hector Dagworth Granger was the founder of the most extraordinary society of potioneers. And I thought, originally I was like, hmm, that's kind of weird that Granger was the choice for a last name there. And it reminded me of what Katie was saying with Dumbledore's note to Lucius saying, pure bloods have mixed with muggles. And that's, they just don't like talk about that. And that's actually where many muggle-borns come from. Um, so there is, it's not just no evidence of magic. Like there was magic somewhere further or further um, generations away. And so that makes me think, oh, Hermione's probably related distantly to Hector Dagworth Granger and just doesn't know it. Um, because in Half-Blood Prince, Slughorn does ask her if she's related to him because it's like part of his slug club thing. And then he gets all flustered and he's like, oh, look, it's fun that you're a muggle too. So I just thought this was a cool little shout out and that we like just learned that Muggleborns really probably aren't really muggle there's probably some sort of wizarding ancestor and then we learn this is probably Hermione's wizarding ancestor it would make total sense she just doesn't know it which I bet like when she grows up she like finds that out like it seems probably. very unlike Hermione to not have like made a family tree and figured it out so then Dumbledore goes on to say about how removing the heart is kind of similar to making a horcrux I mean a horcrux is splitting the soul but the warlock here is dividing body and heart rather than the soul from itself. Um, and Dumbledore says that this is actually going against one of the fundamental laws of magic, actually the first fundamental law of magic, which is tamper with the deepest mysteries, the source of life, the essence of self, only if prepared for consequences of the most extreme and dangerous kind. So this could kind of, this is kind of just a, this whole story is telling kids not to tamper with the magic of life. This is like a magic that, a mystery that no one really understands. So that's kind of a cool message there. And then also from this story, the term to have a hairy heart has become the just common wizarding language for just a cold hearted witch or wizard. And Dumbledore says that his own aunt, Honoria, claims to have called off an engagement because the guy had a hairy heart. But Dumbledore says it was really because he was 
the guy she caught the guy fondling hork lumps which are pink bristly mushroom like creatures which Dumbledore says it is difficult to see why anyone will want to fondle them this feels really sexual yeah (laughs) and like shouldn't be in a children's thing but beyond that my question is is Dumbledore's aunt Honoria the aunt I mean, that's the one that everybody's assuming it is. Like, I'm not going to say for sure, oh, yes, this is this is the only aunt we hear about Dumbledore here, like, having. Yeah, yeah this is what, so. sorry, we were talking about um, in Crimes of Crime. Oh, yeah. <laughs> if you, we're not going to talk about it more here, but you should go listen to our episode. If you know what you're talking about, if you know what we're talking about, then you know. Yeah. If you know, you know. Yeah. So, general thoughts on this one, the Warlock's Harry Heart. It's just that it's pretty disturbing. <laughs> I don't really have anything else to say about it. <laughs> I I think it's a cool story, and I think there's a lot packed in there. Like, all of the stuff in Dumbledore's notes are really cool. Like, the fundamental law of magic, the fact that there's a new phrase, there's a phrase that comes just from it. But um, definitely not my favorite. Yeah, it's giving me, like, Telltale Heart vibes and, like, Romeo and Juliet vibes. Right, because bit. they both end up dead. Yeah. In the, like, on top of each other. Yeah. And definitely the Telltale Heart vibes. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's a very, I don't know if creative is the way, is the right word, but it's just very, like, different, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Even though I'm comparing it to two, like, very well-known stories, I feel like it's still really cool and really unique. The last story that we're going to talk about today, not the last story in Tales of the Bard, because, like we mentioned, we're not going to talk about the Tale of the Three Brothers today. The last one we're going to talk about is Babbity Rabbity and her Cackling Stump. And so this one, I feel like the title set this one up to be a lot more weird than it actually was. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> So, again, this story takes place in a long time ago in a far-off land where a foolish king decided he should be the only one blessed with magic. And I just want to put it out there that he is not a wizard. He's a muggle, but he wants to be the only one with magic, which is like, okay. (laughs) Don't even have magic to begin with. So to do this, he created the Brigade of Witch Hunters, who were in charge of hunting down all magical folk in the land. He also sent out a proclamation for to every like, town village seeking a magical teacher. So no true witch or wizard actually responded to this because they were afraid that the brigade would just like kill them Seems when they outed themselves as a witch or wizard. But this actually doesn't happen because a con man decides that he wants to volunteer as this magical teacher to the king. So he shows up to the palace and starts, like, doing all these, like, magic tricks, basically. (laughs) It's like, I'm magical, and the king believes him. The king's pretty dumb. Yes, he is. And so this man, Desai, asked for rubies and gold to purchase a... Or he asked for gold to purchase a wand, rubies to be used in spell casting, and a silver chalice to brew potions in. The king gives him all of these things. And so the man goes back to his house, puts all of his treasures in his house, and then he takes two branches from a nearby tree, or two sticks from a nearby tree, and heads back to the castle. This entire time, it's revealed that he was being washed, watched by a washerwoman named Babbity. The man returned to the king, giving him the stick he just took, and tells him it's a wand. And they decide to walk around the palace grounds, practicing magic. But this man decides to tell the king that, oh, magic won't work for you until you prove that you're worthy of it. (laughs) And so, the con man is, like, continuing to do his little tricks, and the king is just kind of, like, they look like idiots, basically. They're, like, jumping around, they're waving their, they're, like, twirling their wands, they're saying ridiculous rhymes, and so Babbity starts to watch this from her cottage and begins to laugh at the absurd words and the motions they're doing and the stuff and the hopping they're doing. <laughs> and the king decide, the king becomes angry and frustrated that his magic isn't working and that this woman is laughing at him. And so he declares that tomorrow he's going to perform magic in front of the court. And the con man is like, oh, I didn't tell you I'm going out of town tomorrow. <laughs> I can't help you. And the king's like, oh, hell no. If I catch you leaving this kingdom before tomorrow, I'm going to send hounds after you. And so the man decides, he's like really angry, or he's really scared, and he's really 
alone and so he decides to go vent his anger to Babatine try to like blame her for this but when he shows up to her cottage she is polishing her wand and the sheets are washing themselves so we find out that she is a witch he bursts in and says you have to help me convince the king that he's magical or I'll turn you into the brigade of witch hunters and so she agrees. She hides in a bush nearby and does the spells for the king. He's like, I'm going to make that hat disappear. And so she makes it disappear. But then everything's going well until somebody shows up with a dead dog, one of the hounds that the brigade has been using. And he accidentally ate poisonous berries or something, a poisonous something, and has died. And the guy's like, I want you to bring him back to life. And the king's like, sure, no problem. And Babbity starts to laugh because she's like, well, sorry, I can't bring things back from the dead. And so nothing happens. And then in the in this instance, the con man turns out to be like, the worst guy ever and is like oh my god look at that witch right there she's blocking your magic from happening everybody go get her that i mean yes but he could have just been like oh sorry like magic can't bring things back from death and said he's like look at that witch she's blocking your magic that's why it's not working everybody go hunt her and kill her so babbity runs everybody starts following her And then she disappears. And so everybody's like, where is she? Where is she? The con man, um, I guess in fear of, like, them blaming him, or I don't know if he actually thought this, but he's like, look, she turned herself into this tree right here. We have to cut her down. And so they bring an axe out, and they chop the tree down. But then the stump, a voice um, starts coming from the stump, and it's like, oh, you should know that you can't cut witches in half. That doesn't do anything. And everybody's like, oh, shit. <laughs> and the gunman especially. And so she's like, here, you should try and cut this man in half to see if he's actually a wizard. And he's like, I'm not actually a wizard. Please get your axes away from me. And then the bab- babity, the voice coming from the stump, goes since you've cut me in half i am going to curse your town every time that you hurt a magical person or do anything to them you will feel that pain so if you chop their leg off it will feel like you get your own chop you get your own you're getting your own leg chopped off and so the king promises never to persecute witches and wizards in his kingdom ever again and then she also asked for a statue to be erected of her in solid gold on top of this stump and they agree and then after everybody walks away a little rabbit comes bouncing from under the stump with her with a wand in its mouth and just hops away merrily (laughs) the notes that Dumbledore has on this story begin with him talking about how this is perhaps the most real story out of any of these so the magic in this story conforms to known magical laws we know that you can't bring things back from death and that is true in this story and he also mentions that this is a lot very often like the first time that little witches and wizards find out that they can't bring things back from death so that's also it's like actually teaching them real things about their magic and there's a quote from like a a scholar it says just give it up it's never going to happen because he talks a little bit about how throughout the years many people have tried to bring people or things back from death and it's never succeeded and this guy says just stop trying because you're never going to succeed this is also one of the earliest mentions of an animagus um we can assume that babity turning into a rabbit is because she's an animagus um even though in the story she does speak and we know that animagi do not actually speak with human voices when they're in animal form but this Dumbledore posits that this could just be because uh, Beetle had only heard of animagi before he's never actually seen one or know Mm. what actually is happening and another reason for it to be more likely to for it to be likely that she's an animagus is that this I found really interesting. So if you turn yourself into an animal, like you fully become the animal. So if I were to turn myself into a dog right now, I would never remember being a human. I would not have magic. I would not be able to speak. I would not have none of my human knowledge. Like I would be a full-fledged dog. I would no longer be any part of Katie. And so if she did turn herself into a rabbit, she wouldn't be able to turn herself back. You would have to get another witcher wizard to turn your, turn you back into a person so that seems highly unlikely that's really interesting because like 
you know how sometimes just like transfigurations we see them wearing off like in class i wonder if that's just one like they're learning how to do it like you would think that eventually it would just wear off yeah because i mean they i mean there's one instance in particular i can remember like like who somebody like blows off their eyebrows or their eyebrows get dyed blonde and they like slowly return back to their normal color yeah yeah and i know that like it's kind of in a debate within like the potter fan world like hey what actually happens when they turn goblets into or when they turn like a rat into a goblet are they like no longer a rat anymore are they fully a goblet and i think this seems to answer it and basically yes like when they're a rat they're a rat when they're a goblet they're a goblet but like the wizard can also turn it back into a rat and like I assume that it, like, returns in the same state. So, like, I would return... If I were to turn myself into a dog and you turn me back into a human, like, I would retain all of my, like, Katie memories and knowledge. I just Mm. wouldn't have access to them when I'm a dog. Yeah. That's what I'm assuming. But would you remember being a dog? No. (laughs) Because, I mean, like, when you're that thing, you're fully that thing is, like, what I got from this, you know? Yeah. That would be, like, a really easy way to hide someone, then. Yeah. Like, whether Why against their will. Why they just turn Lily and James into, like, a, a rock? Yeah. Like, even against their will or just, like, if you needed to hide them. Like, if Harry needed to get, like, into the ministry, why couldn't he, like, walk in as a dog and then have Hermione, <laughs> like, transform back, you know? Why could, yeah, why couldn't they have just transfigured Voldemort into, like, a rock? Yeah. War over. Yeah. <laughs> Bellatrix would have untransfigured him. <laughs> True. Yeah, I guess there's always kind of, like, that caveat. Like, yeah. they can always and get also, back. And also for, like, hiding someone. Like, if they hide, hit James and Lily like that, that's kind of miserable. Not well, yes. Good. But they wouldn't know. <laughs> they wouldn't even remember afterwards. <laughs> that doesn't make it okay. Hmm. What if, well, if they consent to it? <laughs> Yeah, I guess. But it also has an element of trust in it, like the secret yes, keeper thing. So. for sure. Yeah, it's just very interesting. Because I feel like that's been, like, a question I've heard multiple yeah. times, like, throughout the years. And it seems like we have a pretty clear answer from this. I don't know if it's the answer that people want, yeah. but it's an answer. <laughs> um, so... A lot of people also think that Beetle might have modeled Babbity after the famous French sorceress Lisette de la Pin. The Pin? I don't know. I can't speak French. So I don't know how it's pronounced. I'm sure it's much fancier than I just pronounced it. Um, and she was convicted of witchcraft in Paris in 1422, but she mysteriously vanished from her cell. But a white later that day or later, a white rabbit was seen crossing the English Channel in a cauldron with a sail attached to it. And then a similar-looking rabbit had become a very trusted advisor to King Henry VI. So it's kind of assumed that this woman was a rabbit animagus and escaped her cell. And then there's also a note that... King Henry the Sixth having a trusted advisor be a rabbit could have added to his reputation of being mentally unstable. And I feel like, yeah, probably. Um, Did he know that she was actually a human? I don't know. She couldn't speak. Unless she, like, turned into a human when they were alone. So many questions. I know. Just another connection with the royal family. (laughs) And I feel like White Rabbit is also, isn't that kind of like a magician trope? Yeah. Yeah. The white rabbit pulled out of the hat and such. And then, so, the another thing that they talk about is the king in this story is under the impression that magic can be learned and it's not created or born, which is, in fact, false. Dating back to a 1672 study, they found that witches and wizards are born, not created. And then later, a study on, a study on muggle-borns found that a witch or wizard normally if they are muggle-born like we don't know that this is for sure true but this is what this study concluded is that muggle-born witches and wizards have a person in their family tree that was whether how far back was a witch or wizard so that's where they get like there's just like a little trace of magic in them and then in some generations it just is stronger than in others this is what i was talking about with hermione 
Yeah, I mean, it's still mentioned a little bit in the letter, like, that you're referring to, because Dumbledore says, say, like, that's what happens, that's how Muggleborns are created, so we know that they're not really fully, you know what I mean? Anyways. (laughs) And then, so Babbity, there's another, like, cool parallel, I don't know if I fully buy this, this seems kind of like a stretch, but... (laughs) Dumbledore has hypothesized that there could be some parallels between what happens in the story and kind of real life events, which I think is true, but I don't know if he pulled the ones I would think of. I think like the king persecuting witches and wizards is like a very clear like parallel to Muggle times, whether whether it's like in England back in like the 14th, 15th, 16th, 17th centuries or like in the United States mm. with the Salem witch trials and all that stuff. Like that is a very common thing that has happened throughout history, both Muggle and wizarding history. But they talk about how at um, Babbity speaking as a tree and threatening to curse the king could draw from the fact that wand-quality trees are always fiercely protected by wand-makers and are guarded with malice by bow-truckles. And then there's also the parallel that the pain that Babbity was threatening could be referring to the Cruciatus curse, um, which he was describing as very similar to the effects of that curse. And at this point, it was not outlawed. The unforgivable curses were outlawed and chosen and banned. That was redundant. Um, in 1717. <laughs> So, I don't know, like, this story, like I said, it's not as, like, whimsical and fun as the title could indicate, but I think it has a good story. It's probably my least favorite. Yeah. <laughs> I know, Wizard and Ho- Wizard in the Hopping Pot and Babbity Rabbity are kind of, like, parrot, like, on par, just, like, they're okay, they're all right. Yeah, my thoughts on this story are that it seems kind of contrary to, in the introduction, what you were talking about, um, that J.K. wrote about Beetle always portraying muggles not really as bad just kind of as ignorant and but still innocent and this like they don't like they are ignorant in this like the king is ignorant he doesn't know how magic works but he's definitely not innocent so like this i think probably has the worst portrayal definitely has the worst portrayal of muggles like they are malicious in this and like the only reason that they agree never to hurt another witch or wizard is because Babbity threatens them. Which is kind of like the wizard in the hopping pot. The muggle... Yeah. In this case, the muggle comes around to avoid physical pain. In the other case, the wizard comes around to avoid being annoyed his whole life. Hi, my name is Larry, and I'm a Slytherin. My name is Justin, and I'm a Slytherin. And together we host the Here's Johnny podcast, where we take a look at horror movies, TV shows... Oh, and games. We also have had amazing guests on the show that are directors, producers... And don't forget writers, Twitch streamers, and other podcasters. Yeah, and you can also check out our show every Monday. Just search Here's Johnny Podcast in your podcast app of choice. And you can always follow us on Twitter at Here's Johnny Cast. We are sure you will find an episode you will love. Maybe just like Ollivander's wands, an episode will pick you. For this week's pop quiz, the questions can be a little bit different. Um, going off of the theme of childhood bedtime stories, what is your what was your favorite as a child? What did you like to read or listen to or have read to you the most? Mine is not really like a one like Tales of Beetle, Beetle the Bard with like a moral and stuff, but I always remember liking Goodnight Moon the most because I really just always loved the illustrations in them. But that was my go-to as a young child. But then also, my mom used to read me Harry Potter before bed, so. (laughs) Yeah, I would say, so mine is a little bit obscure, but this is like the first one that came to my mind, and I'm not sure if anybody's going to know what I'm talking about, but it's a book called The Girl Who Listened to Sinks. It's about this girl who can, like, hear inanimate talk inanimate objects like talking everywhere like she talks about how like each thing has its own personality and (laughs) okay it's a little bit silly but it's like really cute and the sink that like she lives with her mother in like a city and they're not very wealthy and she just likes to listen to them like she's very lonely whatever and the sink that she has in her apartment has like these really skinny ugly legs and the sink always talks about how much I can't remember what gender the sink was, I assume. 
whatever. <laughs> the sink always talks about how much like they're embarrassed by their legs. And so the girl decides to buy fabric from a fabric store on her way home from school one day. And like she creates a skirt for her sink. And then her and her mother create a business. And they finally get to buy their dream house on the beach. Because they sold enough sink skirts? Yeah. yeah. Like, I mean, sink skirts, I think, are a thing. Bed skirts are a thing. <laughs> yeah, sink skirts are a thing, too. <laughs> <laughs> it's like I, it's a really cute story I remember like I think I had that at my grandparents house okay <laughs> so if anybody else knows what story I'm talking about please let me know so um we're gonna end on that note <laughs> you can go subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts Google Podcasts Spotify I don't know if anyone really uses Google Podcasts but my mom does oh thank you thank you katie's mom <laughs> that's like the third episode in a row we've talked about it i know go to subscribe to us on any of those podcast sites um download and listen to our episodes which will be released every tuesday for the remainder of the summer so until the end of august and please 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 leave us a review Yeah, and then we kind of mentioned our social media earlier in the episode, but you can find us on Facebook and Instagram as Wizard Studies Podcast and Twitter as Wizard Studies. And then you can also email us at wizardstudiespodcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to send us your questions. You can DM us on any of our social media platforms, or you can also email us. Any way you can get it to us, that would be amazing. As always, thank you so much for listening. And remember, just do your best. We'll do the rest and learn until our brains all rot. <laughs>